Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Flannery O'Connor, J.K. Rowling, Dr. Zeus, Shakespeare. It's hard to keep up with the growing list of authors and public figures, dead and alive, being cancelled. All in the name of tolerance, of course. Just this past week, I read about the case of one Winston Marshall, a banjoist in the popular UK band Mumford & Sons, who had to take a break from his band after he dared admit that he had gulp read and agreed with a book by a conservative-leaning author who had the gall to criticize Antifa. Never mind that the author in question is a gay, first-generation Vietnamese immigrant whose parents escaped that socialist republic by boat following persecution in their home country. Might this man not have something to say about the dangers of political extremism? Maybe, or maybe not. But if he... And even those who read his work are silenced, cowered, and browbeaten into submission, we'll never know. Winston's public excoriation was, predictably enough, followed by the mandatory and performative struggle session, where Mr. Marshall took to the social media waves to apologize profusely for his thought crime, prostrating himself on the altar of political correctness for the anyways unpardonable crime of daring to read and think outside the accepted orthodoxy, which is to say, to think for himself at all. People's feelings had been hurt, he groveled, as if he were addressing a crowd of children who hadn't quite grasped the meaning of the ditty, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words should never hurt me. Indeed, it is a truly pathetic display, watching a grown man unable or unwilling to defend his right to his own mind, reduced to a sad, self-flagellating sack, slouched at the feet of a chanting mob. How long until we see neighbours snitching on one another for expressing the wrong opinion at dinner parties, or children denouncing their parents to their social justice warrior come political ideologue teachers? No doubt it's already happening somewhere. In the UK city of Bristol, for instance, police are already taking action against offensive speech, by enforcing a series of dictates designed to censor thoughts and words. If it's offensive, reads their slogan, it's an offence. But it's not only invertebrate musicians failing to appease their virtue-signalling hipster audience who are under threat of cancellation. Canonical texts are also on the chopping block, including Shakespeare himself. In a January article of the influential School Library Journal, one miffed columnist denounced the Bard as being, quote, full of problematic, outdated ideas, with plenty of misogyny, racism, homophobia, classism, anti-Semitism, and misogynoir. 
That last indictment, for those unfamiliar with the latest on critical race theory and the concept of intersectionality, describes prejudice specifically against black women, something apparently not sufficiently covered under racism and misogyny. The article went on to praise the brave troop of activist teachers for improving on Shakespeare's hopelessly out-of-date work by blending it with more palatable, progressive ideas. One teacher, for example, thought to reinterpret Romeo and Juliet through, quote, the lens of adolescent brain development with a side of toxic masculinity analysis. Another paired readings of Hamlet with lessons on, quote, what to do with grief and ways to keep from spiraling when faced with stressful situations. This was presumably directed at students who fall to pieces when one of their nonsensical ideas, like the absurd notion that 2 plus 2 equals 5, is introduced to the harsh light of reality. Or when they are asked to engage with someone who holds views other than their own, like those they claim to find in, wait for it, William Shakespeare. Still another teacher, oh, excuse me, educator, uses Shakespeare's tragedy, Coriolanus, to inject a bit of good old-fashioned Marxist theory into the minds of her high school students. When they read a text written centuries ago that addresses events and people from even longer ago, she explained in her own rather unlettered English, it is easier for them to divorce their analysis from their biases and inherent beliefs about class in the modern era. Close quote. What biases and inherited beliefs might these be, exactly? Or could this simply be code for aberrant thought in desperate need of teacher-led correction? Indeed, there is something particularly Orwellian about occupying kids' minds. It was Lenin, after all, who said, Give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. As most anyone with an ounce of intellectual honesty realises, all this nonsense and lip service about diversity and inclusivity doesn't extend to the realm of ideas at all. When it comes to thought, there are only two categories in 2021, the prohibited and the mandatory. Yes, gentle listener, in an age where asking questions is considered tantamount to being a denier, regardless of the subject at hand, one is left to wonder exactly what is happening to our culture. And by culture, let me be clear, I specifically mean Western culture, that is, classically liberal societies, the kind that cherish concepts like private property, individual rights, rule of law, freedom of speech, press and assembly, and, yes, the right to a fair trial, as opposed to the hysterical witch hunts currently sweeping the nation. These are concepts developed and nurtured over hundreds, nay, thousands of years of trial and, yes, error, the latter being a crucial component of the learning process itself. And yet, here we are being encouraged to throw out the lessons of yore, to erase our history, burn our books and topple our statues, as if we have already arrived at the enlightened age of perfection, fully-fledged humans formed of the gods' own pure clay and shot forth into a moment in time when no more learning is necessary, no further inquiry required. Of course, it's all too easy to claim all the answers when you don't tolerate any questions. Ah, but Joel, I hear you reckoning, what on earth does all this privileged complaining have to do with money and investing and the markets? Well, more than you may think, it turns out. 
You see, it's the very same rotten, divisive ideology that threatens to tear our culture asunder that is currently at work in the economy at large too. It's destroying sound money, encouraging reckless malinvestment, and bidding a whole generation of useful idiots to take no thought for the morrow and instead bet everything against their own future. To help connect the dots between fake money and faux culture, between collapsing attention spans and shortened holding periods, between win-lose deals and the prospect of a lose-lose tomorrow, I caught up with my old mate Dan Denning. There's a lot to get through this week, dear listener, so grab a coffee or a copa, depending on the time of day, and join me for my full conversation with Dan up next. In some ways, I think this might be uh, more of a, um, a a psychoanalysis session or um, uh, <laughs> a psychological uh, therapy session than a podcast because I have been going crazy the last, I don't know, couple of weeks or something, uh, talking to Americans and Brits about what's going on in the United States with cancel culture and all this, uh, you know, and it kicked off with Dr. Zeus, although I'm not sure, maybe that's just kind of like peak lunacy, but it, there was a long, long run up to this. And I, I said to myself, you know, I've got to talk to somebody who's actually living in the US right now, because these are expats that are floating all around the world. And, you know, they're just getting their information the same way that I do, which is from, you know, at the, at the other end of big tech's algorithms that feed us, you know, whatever we engage with most. And, and they try and make us angry so that we, you know, get in. Twitter wars and all that kind of stuff. But I thought I've got to ask someone who's, who's sitting in the US if it's really this batshit crazy or mm-hmm. if this is just pumped up media hype and that, that's just the kind of thing that sell newspapers. But like, I mean, you're in the middle of the woods, but um, or up the mountain. Um, but is it, I mean, do you engage with this kind of stuff like day to day, like, you know, just at the local barbecue or, or the bar or the laundromat? Are, are people that as heated up as we would have it, the media would have it made, make it out to be? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, uh, I hope not. I, I think I'm forced to engage with the mainstream media and social media as an occupational hazard. And I've, <laughs> you know, for the record, I've said that I've, the financial part of Twitter where people either share their proprietary research or provide commentary on market action is useful to me because it's an unmediated direct from the source type of uh of a fodder for my own decisions and my own strategy so and and then of course for the things that we're talking to our readers about in the bonner denny letter that, that there's some really smart thoughtful independent reasonable people on twitter there's also a lot of insane people on there <laughs> as well and i think that's what happens is you know if, if you happen to find yourself in New Orleans this time of year, any other year but this year or last year, and you were anywhere near Bourbon Street at any time of the day, you would not be surprised <laughs> with the kind of party atmosphere, right? You know, mm. you've got Mardi Gras and Fat Tuesday and, and people go there for a reason. People who engage with social media or who watch CNN or listen to Fox News or listen to talk radio are they have an emotional investment in a political argument and 
they get either some sort of nourishment from this interaction or it's just like fuel for their anger uh, or their sense of outrage. So when you're in that when you're in that space, you can't help but feel like, oh my God, what do I actually think about Dr. Seuss? I hadn't thought about that. Or, you know, for me, the stuff that really bothers me is when I read that universities and high schools are removing what I consider classical literature from the curriculum. Not necessarily because it's not relevant anymore, which is a fair enough argument. But for historical reasons, like, for example, Chaucer getting the Canterbury Tales being removed from university curriculums in place of more contemporary stuff. Maybe that's just progress. Maybe that's just whatever it is. But when it's presented as we have to remove these things because they're not sufficiently diverse, they come from a culture and, uh, or a society that was systemically racist, that was oppressive, that didn't uh, treat women or... Uh, other people uh, correctly. So therefore, there's nothing of value. In fact, they must be removed from the culture. That bothers me because that's my background in literature. The rest of the stuff is just meant to divide and conquer us, to, to disguise the fact that in the last 18 months, the government has suspended civil liberties, unilaterally removed our ability to travel freely, um, shut down small businesses, closed the way schools operated, and conducted a systematic campaign of fear in order to reorient everybody's relationship with the state. They would rather us talk about Dr. Seuss. Yeah, so I mean, that kind of begs the question, how much of that is, is orchestrated or, you know, without kind of sounding conspiratorial, but how much of it is orchestrated and how much of it is politicians just taking advantage of a situation that was kind of handed to them in the, in the form of a, you know, kind of global panic? Uh, and does it matter either way? Because, you know, we're, we're getting what comes down the pipes one way or another, and we have to deal with it regardless of, of the, the motivation of that, that kind of genesis. I think it's similar to the way we've described the deep state in the past is that you have, uh, you have what looks like an organized system, but really it's just uh, a lot of independently moving objects who have a common center of gravity. So they fall into the same orbit around an idea so in the case of the deep state, you've got uh, defense companies, you've got Wall Street, you've got uh, the military industrial complex in Washington, and now you have Silicon Valley, all of whose interests are aligned in perpetuating permanent warfare in the United States. In this case, you've got uh, some people who quite deliberately want to shift the United States in a leftward direction politically, which they call progressive, but which could be more accurately called communist uh, or socialist. Regressive, yeah. Yeah, they, they, you know, they have a clear economic and political agenda. But I think a lot of the people on social media that are that are adding to the confusion in the culture. So whether it's critical race theory or transgender rights or any of these other issues, I'm not diminishing the fact that some people think these are are valuable, legitimate, important conversations. But to use Lenin's term, I think, or it was either Lenin or Stalin, in the these are useful idiots. They, mm. they, they perpetuate the idea that there's a culture war, which distracts people from what's going on economically and politically in Washington. So right. people are preoccupied with, with what I think are rather trivial uh, or unimportant things. And, and they miss, it's a, what do they call it in, in uh, did you ever see that movie, The Prestige with uh, Christian Bale, where he plays the magician? No, I didn't. And it's a great movie with Michael Caine, one of the many hundreds of movies Michael Caine's in. I think he's in that movie. <laughs> Michael Caine, um, that narrows it, narrows it down to 643 titles. 
Yeah, and actually Hugh Jackman's in there and David Bowie plays Nikola oh. Tesla. David wow. Bowie plays Nikola Tesla in the movie. But What's anyway, it called? The Prestige? The Prestige, yeah. Okay, and this well, is on tonight's, he, he just, tonight's menu. It's <laughs> great. It's a great movie. And he describes this, uh, the second part of a magic trick. I can't remember what the first, there's the reveal, there's the intro, but the prestige is the misdirection. It's where the in, you- the, the intermediary press the digitation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, what exactly. They, they, See how that distracted that. just from the, <laughs> yeah. just rolls off now, the tongue. <laughs> now I don't even remember what my point was. No, I, I do. The there point is, <laughs> it's that point in a magic trick where you distract someone's attention from where- where the the grubby real world secret is so mm. they think something special has happened and what's happened is something that's that's utterly pedestrian and in mundane so I, I think in some way to bring it back to the social media stuff this outrage with cancel culture is one there's a deliberate attack on civil liberties especially free speech and the intention of that is to suppress not just speech but action, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, people going to church, and also thought. Mm. When you censor speech and you attack the language and say you cannot say these words or you must say these words, what you're really trying to do is rewire the way people think so that they self-censor. And that to me is what really is, and that is quite deliberate that, that, and sinister as well. Right. And uh, it, I mean, it, it occurs to me that... Um, that the censoring of or the canceling of certain books for quote unquote historical sensitivities, because as you said, you know, one particular culture was perceived to be, you know, misogynistic or, or racist or bigoted or whatever in the past, which, you know, most of us would just call the past where everybody was, you know, not up to 2020 or 2021's, um, you know, standards of, of wokeness. It, it does occur to me that by removing a lot of those texts, uh, that foster the kind of critical thinking that that allow um, you know deeply in, um, studious individuals to be able to think their way out of problems. It it takes away a lot of the circuit breakers uh, for you know this big behemoth that just is just kind of rolling on through and suppressing speech and um, and trampling on civil liberties. Where you you would you know if you go back to I know you're you're a classicist yourself, but you go back to um, you know, the Socratic dialogues, you go back, you know, to the, to the original texts, Aristotle, whatnot. And, you know, th these are the tools that we need to engage in critical, independent thinking in the first place. So it's almost kind of like covering their tracks in the snow. If, if they get rid of these books, then not only do they, you know, uh, further advance their own agenda, but they deny students the tools with which to be able to think their way out of those traps that they're that they're laying so it's a kind of a double-edged uh double-edged sword there yeah well i think it's i think that's a good summary of it and i think there's actually a a willful element of vandalism destruction and uh sort of culture not cultural suicide but something like that because it, the more you get into it the more you realize that the terms that you used you know you you're using terms from uh, the Aristotelian, Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian enlightenment tradition that says the way to understand the world and the way to become a better person or to organize a fair, equal, just society is to use reason um, and to have rules about proper individual behavior. And I think what you're hearing more and more, it, it used to be very, very marginal, and it's being mainstreamed or normalized through 
mostly academia, and then again through the through the few critical institutions of the press, is that that very idea is inherently mm. oppressive or rigid or uh, or in some ways is an attack on non-traditional ways of understanding or of it's a colonial or of, colonial patriarchy yeah. or something that's yeah that, that 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 it's 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 a it's the colonization of the mind by people who think that there's there's only one way to think and that that's reason that other other ways of understanding uh, which would be from indigenous cultures or or more ancient cultures maybe are being marginalized or or suppressed or oppressed by this way of thinking so when you get to that you say well then let's chuck out the enlightenment let's chuck out um, most of uh, ancient history because it's only from a small group of people and let's let's reinvent everything and, and that's this, that's an inherently revolutionary concept and that you know you don't have a revolution <laughs> without two things without destroying who's currently in power and without the intention of taking over power and mm. uh you know this to me feels i said it last year i think when we first started talking it's it was 2020 equals 1789 plus 1968 and now it's 2021 so you have the the intellectual arrogance of the french revolution combined with the cultural viciousness of uh the great leap forward in china and uh that's dangerous and it just that so i wouldn't want to trivialize that because these you know conservatives in the small c sense believe that traditions exist because they persisted because they were effective ways for people to either regulate their own behavior or interact with other people. They're not the weight of the past. We, we only do it because that's what we're born into. It's that they're useful from an evolutionary point of view. And when you, when you go around and you topple all the statues and you burn all the books and you throw out all the laws and you attack math, science, and reason, you can do a lot of damage. Yeah, and and in short order too. That's, I think you know one of the most uh, terrifying aspects of this whole thing for me is is watching it from afar. Uh, you know, down here in Argentina, where we're kind of largely insulated from, um, you know, from the madness that's going on in the rest of the world. We have our own particular madness that <laughs> that's going on down here, uh, which we could talk about later. But uh, I'm I'm quite. Uh, concerned about the pace with which this is taking place, because you know, as you said earlier, it, it's it's one thing to have you know a, a sober-minded, good faith uh, discussion about you know the merits of one or another author, let's say, or one of a, one or another uh, method of inquiry or you know path to to truth. But I think what we've seen in the last you know certainly the last six or eight months that you and I have been having this ongoing conversation is that that has gone into hyper acceleration with the advent of this kind of catalyzing advent of COVID where it, it doesn't seem like such a stretch. If you, if you tell people on a Monday that, hey, now you have to wrap your face up, lather yourself in gel and hide under your bed sheets, uh, you know, otherwise we're going to come, you know, you'll be breaking some curfew laws. It, all of a sudden on Tuesday, banning six books about cats in hats doesn't seem like an enormous imposition. You know, it just seems like, okay, well, while I guess while we're throwing out the bathwater, we may as well be throwing out the baby and starting from scratch. But, but I, I worry that we don't, you know, that we're not taking the time to have those very serious 
conversations because a lot of them are are irreversible in in a way. Uh, I just read one just to take one anecdote. There was um, in Loyola College uh, in Maryland. Um, there was the um, Flannery O'Connor. I think it was it was either a dorm room or like an auditorium or something. But anyway, named after uh, the great Southern short story writer, poetess, etc. And uh, there was a fellow who had written a book about you know bi- a biography of Miss O'Connor and her life and and her struggles with you know growing up in the South and seeing you know she was a, a product of her environment as as they say, but she struggled with with racism and sort around her. And he had written this book about her dealing honestly with those issues and working to overcome them. And then obviously she went on to become, you know, one of the, uh, one of the kind of torchbearers of, of being able to overcome those, those issues. And somebody ran with that book, misquoted it, you know, took tons of um, O'Connor's remarks out of context and basically just painted her as a racist and, and, and just said, okay, that's it. We need to cancel, you know, this, this Loyola College needs to, you know, stop endorsing racism and bigotry and all this kind of stuff. The author of the book actually wrote in to the columnist in question and said, hey, look, you've, you have, ma- this is really bad faith arguing. Like you have completely taken this out of context, et cetera. But by the time that had happened, somebody from the student body had already written to the author of the book and said, Oh, hey, you're the one who wrote the book about how racist Flannery O'Connor is. Uh, we want your signature on a petition to have her name removed from the college. And the guy's like, wait, excuse me, that's absolutely not what I wrote. You know, but, but by the time that very sober-minded discussion had even begun, the cherry pickers were already out the front of the hall and were taking down the name. And then, you know, and then we just move on to the next, whatever the next you know, two minutes of hate you know, flashy anger mob, but we didn't take the time to have the discussion of, of the merits of that original thing. And now, you know, the, the, the irony of all this is now a bunch of students that are at Loyola College, most of them had never read uh, O'Connor's work in the first place, but now they're, now they're not even going to get the chance to because she's been kind of stricken from the record. So the, the real victims of all of this are the inquiring minds of the future who march under the under the banner of, of progressiveness and tolerance, <laughs> which is the grand irony uh, of all. Well, it, it ends up being that there's only one, there's a sort of monoculture, unipolitical party, and you, you must believe the orthodox view. And, and the only thing that's strong enough to generate an orthodox view is, is usually in opposition to something. So you know, that's why in 1984, the object is not to win the war, the object is to always be at war. And in the culture wars, maybe that's the whole point is that there's always got to be something else to be outraged by, which, you know, it's disappointing because, um, well, it's disappointing for a lot of reasons, but it's also hubristic to think that we're in a position to cast, uh, to, to render judgment on the past from, from our privileged position. It was in the 20th century that Oliver Wendell Holmes and the Supreme Court basically advocated for eugenics when said three generations of imbeciles is enough. It was mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger in the women's rights movement who advocated for abortion, which which has had a, a, just a, an immensely destructive impact on blacks in the United States for the last 50 years. And we don't talk about that in the United States because it right. gets subsumed as a civil rights issue. But, you know, for, from, from our point of view, I, I think these issues, which are social and political, are also inseparable from the economic issues, uh, most 
recently anyway, is this anxiety about inflation, that when you do what the Federal Reserve did in 1941 and you decouple money from something stable so that you don't have sound money anymore, then you get repercussions in the culture. And we see this again in those two places we talk about all the time in revolutionary France and in Weimar Germany, that what happens in the culture because of the delinking of money uh, starts to be outrageous. So in financial terms, it gets you get lots of speculation, which is, of course, exactly what we have now with non-fungible tokens, SPACs, Tesla, the NASDAQ. But uh, it, it happens because values uh, get unhitched from an anchor and people are not incentivized to think about the future anymore. So a great example is if you look at the average holding period for stocks, from the 1970s to now, it went from years to months to weeks to days to hours. And so, you know, if you're not <laughs> thinking about the future as a as a place to to pass on to your children something where they can thrive and prosper as individuals, then why would you care about the past either? You know, right. all you really care about is how you feel right now. And it's right. in that way, it's sort of the triumph of the immediacy of your emotion over any other objection. How you feel becomes more important than even what somebody else intended. And we've seen that before as people said, well, I don't really care what the author's intention was or the speaker's intention was, even if it was benign or accidental. I'm offended. If I, yeah. <laughs> if I was harmed, if I felt harmed, that's, the, that's justification for censoring the other person's speech, modifying their behavior, or excluding them from some form of, of public life. And that's a totalitarian, and I would even say a childish impulse, which is why the scariest people during the Cultural Revolution were students and children. Mm, yeah. <laughs> they were putting dunce caps on their parents and, and executing university professors. So, you know, people think that those sort of things couldn't happen in the United States, but, but emotionally, they already are happening. Yeah, well, I mean, somebody sent me an article just the other day about a, a, a popular, a, a frontman of a popular band who had read a book that was, my goodness, you know, not part of the of the orthodoxy, uh, you know, with regards to kind of, I don't even know what the book was it about, but it apparently wasn't approved for, you know, by the masses. I think it was a, a critical of Antifa, and he he read this book, uh, copped to it, and then had to resign as head of his band, songwriter, lead songwriter of his band, and go through this, you know, we're talking about dunces caps, he had to go through this kind of struggle session, you know, where he comes out in public and he makes all these groveling prostrations and promises that he'll never read a book under his, you know, that's that's not on the approved list. Uh, again, so I think we're already kind of seeing that seep into the culture, and it's being normalized at a at such a rapid rate that, again, I don't think that we've that we're fully apprehending what we're doing. But to go back to your your observation about the holding time of stocks as a proxy for our ability to look forward into the future, not only for ourselves but for future generations, it it occurs to me that 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 foreshortened horizon. Uh, more or less mirrors the attention span. I'm not sure which is the chicken and which is the egg of the you know average participant in, let's say, the society in the in the media age, where you know we once upon a time we used to sit down and spend a couple of weeks reading a book. Now we want it on audiobook, or or even better, we want it on YouTube or 
God forbid, a podcast, but <laughs> now we just want it. We want it quick and dirty and and we don't have, you know, we don't have the patience to be able to sit through an investment, wait for its its maturity, wait for wait for the capital to grow, wait for the business to expand, wait for it. I mean, even now, wait for it even to turn a positive cash flow. I mean, that's considered just a total something not even necessary for, you know, to secure however many millions of of, of dollars that you needed funding to to go live. I can't imagine this all portends well. <laughs> well, it's I don't think it does. And there's again an element of hubris to it in the financial markets, uh, which is grounded in a sort of kernel of truth that largely since the internet revolution, that quantitatively and informationally is very hard to have an investment advantage on either basis anymore. So one of the interesting things about the whole Robinhood discussion is how their business model was essentially selling order flow to Citadel. So Citadel could get the order flow of retail investors. And I may be getting this wrong, so I don't want to say anything that's going to get me in trouble with a huge multinational company. But I would say uh, they there appears to be some advantage in knowing what other people are going to be doing with their money and then being able to trade on that front run that information <laughs> quickly. I don't know sequentially when that happens, but, uh, right. but other than that, and of course this goes back to Renaissance capital in, uh, in their incredible performance in the last few years that they, we don't know. It's sort of a black box, but the idea that uh, maybe if you're able to measure behavior in a mathematical way, in a quick way, you can extract some meaningful advantage that, that enhances your investment performance. But only very few people are doing that. And now there's so much information that's publicly available that really the your only advantage is, is your experience or your judgment. What does that mean? And you have to be able to exclude stuff that is not meaningful and focus on the stuff that is, uh, which, and even that you don't really have to do anymore because everything just goes up, right? You know? <laughs> so. So you're doing yourself a disadvantage if you're thinking about, well, is Tesla making cars? Have they sold a Cybertruck or one of the one of the long haul trucks? Who cares? It's up 34% mm. since the Friday bottom. You know, that's a liquidity driven market. And that's mm. why in all the criticism of the uh, uh, the Weimar inflation and also in, in the Great Depression is that monetary policy generates a system where the people who can borrow money cheaply can speculate on financial assets and get wealthy that way, while people who depend on wages can't and see the value of their savings and their wage go down, which is why we're having a discussion about raising the minimum wage. What we should be talking about is getting back to sound money. But, uh, right. but you know, all of the, just everything in the modern world, your phone, the internet, just tells you to, is, is drawing your attention in a thousand different directions. And I think what, especially those of us who's grown up in that culture now realizes you have to turn that stuff off and you can't let it dominate or dictate your investment decisions. Although I say that yesterday I went out for a beer in the sun before it started snowing and uh, there was a group of tourists who were at a couple tables away and uh, it was, it looked like some grandparents and their kids and like three generations. And the, the father of the toddler goes, this vacation brought to you by AMC stock. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> so you know, wow, signs thought, of the signs of the times. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, you know, that, but that's what happens now. Is people think, well, the only rational thing to do is to try to get rich as quickly as possible because yeah. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Things are changing too fast, and if I don't do that, then I'm going to get left behind. 
Yeah, and and, and that it, is to your original point. When that mentality takes over, you're in trouble. Yeah, and it's important, I think, for for people to remember the uh, you know that that the descent is often more hazardous than than the climb. And so while it's all you know while we're all scaling these impossible heights uh, and reaching these these nosebleed valuations, there comes a point where people say. At, as you mentioned, look, I'm not I'm not necessarily looking for a financially sound company with that I can buy into it at at a decent valuation that I expect you know has a a, a plausible road map for growth. It's how can I get ahead of the herd and buy something that everybody else will buy so that it goes up and I can unload it to somebody else uh, who you know I can sell that same story to. So it's. But eventually, you run out of you run out of runway, and then you know the plane's in the ditch. So to mix metaphors, but but I think I'm not sure how much runway we have left. But it's where it seems like we're paving it like you know one meter ahead of the ahead of the wheel. Well, and we could be wrong. You know, I I I, I take it. I take I understand when people say, well, those are the arguments people make who aren't invested in those assets. You missed out, so you're you're rubbishing them or you're poo-pooing them because because you're not benefiting from them. And what we're really talking about is the future. You're talking about the past. So you're talking about like we recommended an oil and gas investment as the trade of the decade. And on the other side of the trade, people say that's there won't be oil and gas in ten years. There's an energy transition, and everything's going to be renewable. Or we buy gold when it's under seventeen hundred dollars an ounce, and they say. Gold is old-fashioned. It's what are they called? An analog shitcoin. You should be buying other uh, new money that has the same principles as sound money. So there is an argument to be made that the future is a lot more exciting than the past, and you just got to get on board and embrace this this age of exponential change. And maybe we're just too grumpy and old-fashioned to recognize that. And I think there's actually an element of that in the, in the sort of generational views of uh, millennials versus boomers. It's, but it's, it's never quite accurate to lump that, you know, 80 million people in either camp. There's going to be a lot of differences of opinion. But, um, but if, you're, if you're under the age of 30 or 35 and you lived or graduated from college during the GFC or you grew up in high school or your parents lost their job or they lost their house – wouldn't you'd be doing what they're doing now, which is saying, well, I don't know if social security is going to be there. I'm going to end up paying for these boomers to retire. So I've got to do whatever I can to try and get rich now. Cause I, there's not going to be a housing market. It's even hard for me to get in on the housing ladder. So there is an element of boomers have financial assets that they're going to retire off of. They want them to go up. Millennials have missed out so that they've, they have uh migrated and gravitated toward new assets, digital assets, new innovations in the financial sector. That's all interesting and valid, but what you hope is that uh, people don't take a very small money amount of money that they can't afford to lose and lose it all. And that I think is what's going to happen to a lot of people. Yeah, that sounds like the that sounds like the mating makings of an intergenerational warfare to come that's not that's that's not going to be pretty but uh, hopefully we can uh, hopefully there is some kind of middle ground there uh you know we've we've spoken before about different um you know individuals having different risk profiles and being able to to adjust accordingly uh on a you know podcast a couple of weeks ago with uh with bill bonner we were speaking about okay maybe if you're an 85 or a 90 year old 
gentlemen, you probably want to have a little more, you know, a little more reliable, historically reliable uh, metal in your non-dollar asset allocation of your portfolio. But maybe if you're, if you're, you know, just getting started and you're 25, uh, you know, you can probably afford to be a little bit more, uh, you know, a, a little bit more uh, hungry with regards to your risk appetite. And you might want to, you might want to speculate a little bit because you can afford to maybe make and lose it three or four times over. But I don't think I'd want to be, uh, want to be too speculative if I was fast approaching retirement or looking to, you know, sail off for, for a while. I might want to take a little bit more of a conservative approach. Yeah. Time, time is a huge factor in, in, uh, if, if you don't feel like you can make up for a large loss, then, then you've got to manage accordingly. And on the other hand, even for people who do have more time on their side and therefore more compound interest or long-term trends that, that can, can raise all boats over decades, you, you're still, there's still a lot of risk right now. And, you know, in that regard, I think some interesting things have been going on in the market with respect to long-term interest rates or government bond interest rates anyway, that have risen a lot since last summer. And uh, this idea that there is, that there is such a thing as the risk-free rate of return in financial markets and that that thing is, and will continue to be us government bonds. I think that's going to be an interesting story to watch for the rest of the year, because I'd seen something today from the Congressional Budget Office estimated that that uh, for the month of March alone, the government was going to borrow almost $400 billion, which was greater than ever before. And that um, in the first five months of the fiscal year 2021, the deficit was already a trillion dollars, which is about on pace to be what they thought it was, was $2.3 trillion for the year, which is going to be about 10% of GDP. The only other time it's been higher was in 1945 and last year when it was 15% of GDP, but that's prior to, to a infrastructure plan. So now that we've done the $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus, fresh off the printing press is gonna come another $2 trillion, which goes to God knows what. So my point is <laughs> the, the, the total deficit figure for the year is going to be higher, both as a percentage of GDP and in nominal terms, which is gonna put a lot of pressure on interest rates. The government's gonna to have to pay more interest. And we saw what happened just for a brief period of time when the 10 year yield went to 1.6, the NASDAQ had a mini meltdown. So higher interest rates put a lot of pressure on growth stocks. And uh, I don't know that there's a gener this current generation of, of new investors in these names is aware of that relationship or prepared for how quickly the, uh, the elevator can go down. Well, it, it certainly seems to bode well for your sell the dollar uh, half of the pair trade uh, for the coming decade. I was commenting with one of the guys uh, that I worked with on the trade is that it's too bad one month doesn't equal 10 years because it's been a pretty good, it's good pretty, trade so far. <laughs> pretty good start to the trade. Did we, did we say decade? Didn't you mean trade of the month? I thought. Yeah. Decades will become months. Uh, <laughs> but we'll see, you know, it's, that's the advantage of this sort of thing is you just don't think about it. So, so one month's performance uh, is not, uh, not nearly enough, not even close enough time to judge it. I think it means we got one part of the argument, right? Which was that, uh, that oil and energy stocks had performed so poorly for the previous 10 years that, that just on a mean reversion basis, there was a decent probability that they would outperform uh, and they did when the tech stocks fell. The larger question is, is what kind of capital investment will be in oil and energy stocks? Uh, what will the price of oil be? What will the supply be? 
what's going to happen for the rest of this year. And of course, our theory is, uh, I think that the energy transition is essentially a thermodynamic fraud that uh, you simply can't get to a renewable world without consuming enormous quantities of oil and gas. Beautiful. Okay, Matt. Well, look, we'll be uh, checking in with the trade of the decade for the next uh, 119 months uh, <laughs> intermittently. So uh, we'll bring you, no- <laughs> bring you news of how that goes uh, along the way. Um, but, Dan, thanks very much, mate. Uh, we'll, we'll check in again soon. Okay. See you, Joel. Bye. Cheers, buddy. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.